Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 3.14159, recorded August 17th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 124. Security Now is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, visit netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your friends online from predators and bad guys and hackers. <laughs> Those two, yes. And here's the man in charge of catching that predator. <laughs> Actually, no, you don't catch him. You just expose him. Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation manufacturer of Spinrite, the world's... Do you call it, when you're talking software, I guess you're not a manufacturer. You're a creator. Publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, lots of freebies, and uh, of course, the uh, host of Security Now for one three hundred and fourteen episodes, more than five years now. Yeah, well, more actually, we crossed into while uh, two weeks ago we did three twelve, which is six times fifty two. So, or wait, yeah, six times fifty two. We're now in year seven, Leo. What the heck? Yeah, more than six years. Wow. More than six years. Um, we didn't. Yeah. We didn't note that, but uh, wow, that's great! Congratulations. Yeah, and welcome back. By the way, for all of our regular podcast listeners, we they know that Tom was hosting for two weeks, and you're done with the trial, and so jury, jury duty is over. Us. And that's where the predator came in. It was a it was a online uh, child uh, predator case, which got thrown out for entrapment. Um, but a very boy, it was interesting. You know, it was it, it, the the whole thing happened five years ago, and it was in a time when people were really scared of the internet. And uh, there was this perception that the internet was loaded with predators. We've we've learned since that it's not. Um, but uh, at the time, people were terrified, and I think that's that's a, when this happened. You know, yeah, that's a real good point. I hadn't thought about that. What a difference five years makes oh, yeah. in in internet time is like amazing. We should also mention for our listeners who are used to receiving the podcast on Wednesday evening or Thursday morning that next week I'll be recording I'm switching places with Paul again he's 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 going to take the Wednesday slot and I'm going to take the Thursday slot so we will be uh Windows Weekly will be early and uh Security Now will be a day late that's great but not a dollar short <laughs> thank you for doing that we appreciate your uh, flexibility we try not to do that but um Paul's Paul doing a lot of traveling lately so we have a Q&A, number 124, in our continuing series of your questions, Steve's answers. We're going to get to those in just a second. But first, uh, let's get some uh, security updates. Uh, okay, so lots of Mozilla news. Uh, the uh, Something that I was really glad to see was the announcement that 
version seven, believe it or not. We were just at three, then four, then five. Now six is available. We're soon to have seven um, late next month, late, late in September. Version seven, among other changes, will be shrinking Firefox's memory appetite by 20 to 30 percent. Um, there's a two-month-old project called MemShrink, which began in mid-June, um, which has been working on finding and closing memory holes and leaks. Um, the uh, One of the developers was quoted saying, Firefox version 7 uses less memory than version 6 and 4 and 5, often 20 to 30% less, and sometimes as much as 50% less. This means that Firefox 7 is faster, sometimes drastically so, and less likely to crash, particularly if you have many websites open at once and or keep Firefox running for a long time between restarts. Well, this is this is something that I have noticed because I watch memory consumption pretty much constantly. I have like task manager open on, on one part of one of my screens just because I'm seeing this problem. And I've noticed that I can... I'm still on five, and it's been saying that six is available, except that six is un- incompatible with three add-ons that I would like to be using. So I'm holding off jumping up to six until they catch up. But if I close Firefox, and then I see memory drop like like 500 megs, like half a gig. And then if I restart it, all the same tabs reload. I should say that's about 50 tabs that I, <laughs> I have open. I love tabs. Um, and then as the tabs load, memory creeps back up again, but only to about maybe half to two-thirds of what it was before. And I have noticed also that if I close tabs, that memory is never recovered. So I'm really delighted that Firefox is, is – the Mozilla guys are going to be addressing this in Firefox because, you know, I've been looking enviously over at Chrome thinking, well, it does, isn't really quite as, as tab-friendly as Firefox is, and I really like my add-ons. Ghostery is there, but, but you know, no script as easy as it is over Firefox is not yet available over on Chrome in the same fashion. So, you know, I'm staying with Firefox for now. So funny. Um, we just – we're talking about Firefox 4 coming out, then 5 came out, and now 6 is coming out. Uh, I well, guess we should stop and, looking at numbers, right? Well, well and facts, in fact, Mozilla is going to be helping us with that. They're taking the version numbers yeah. off of Firefox. Um, they've said that they're going to be removing Firefox's version numbering from view completely. It will not be in the about window anymore uh the official position is that users don't care about version numbers yeah but we care well wait we care if the plugins don't work uh, that's a very good point i mean chrome chrome doesn't trumpet version numbers but you can always go and look and see what version number you're using right so what's happening is um uh, Asa Dotzler, who's one of the developers, he announced in a Bugzilla bug report that the Firefox About dialog will stop listing version numbers, mm-hmm. but simply state that the browser checked for an update recently and that the user is running the latest version. Those who want to know what version they're running can consult the About colon support window. Oh, okay. So you, ha- so you, have, to, uh, you have to type About colon support into the URL and that'll then bring you lots of details about stuff. So, I mean, I, I think we're seeing them being influenced by the Chrome model, which is, you know, actually I had a lot of people 
tweeting they got a kick out of my saying that the Chrome version numbers reminded me of the U.S. debt clock. <laughs> because it was just, you know, going all the time and big number that just kept changing. Every time we looked, it was different. So um, the, uh, a change is coming for add-ons also in the so-called Aurora release, which is available, I think, now in pre-beta. If you put Firefox Aurora into Google, it'll take you to a URL um, where you can download it. Um, what they're doing is they're going to start protecting us from software which adds add-ons to Firefox without our explicit knowledge and permission. And, you know, we've often talked, for example, about how you can get toolbars and add-ons added unless you're very careful installing things. And in some cases, you'll add software that won't even ask for your permission or knowledge. So what's going to happen is that starting with Aurora, which is not yet in general release, but it should be soon, especially at the rate that these guys are going, you will be asked to explicitly authorize any add-ons that you ha that have appeared in Firefox, but have but you have not yet authorized. When you upgrade to a new version of Fire, like a major version. And I'm not sure how they're going to handle this, not showing you the version versus major version. We talked about this a few months ago, saying that you would always be given the opportunity of, of acknowledging a major, major version update. So maybe that'll still be the case. You just won't see it in the about box. You'll have to go to this about colon support URL page in order to get that. So I guess that's what's going to happen. But so anyway, so it's good news that that... that Anything that is is installed without our explicit acknowledgement will not be run. Firefox will say, "Okay, here's something new. You need to make, you know, you need to give the browser permission to run this." And presumably, you could say, "Whoa, that's not something that I want," and just, you know, decline to accept that, which is, uh, I think, really good. So, um, there's been some controversy over. How many flash bugs Adobe has fixed recently? <laughs> uh, our friend Tavis Ormandy, who's a security researcher at Google, uh, blogged that he had given Adobe 400, reported wow. 400 flash bugs, although Adobe was counting them as 80. Um, Adobe's Brad Arkin, who is the senior director of product security and privacy, posted to Adobe's blog as a consequence of some of this back and forth. He said, quote, there's been some chatter about CVE numbers lately. So I thought it would be helpful to clarify Adobe's position on how we use CVEs to communicate product security information. CVE.mitre.org describes them as, quote, international in scope and free for public use. CVE is a dictionary of publicly known information about security vulnerabilities and exposures, unquote. So uh, Brad continues, unfortunately, there, and, and, and I have to say I, he brings up some good points here. He says, unfortunately, there are many differences in opinion on how CVEs should be used in real world situations. If there are four instances of unsafe buffer usage resolved with a single buffer size check, does that represent four CVEs 
or just one? If vulnerable code is copied and pasted into multiple products, should the vulnerable line of code be described with a single CVE or one unique CVE for each product? How does the answer change if the product is vulnerable because of a linked vulnerable library rather than copy and pasted code? And as he says, the real world questions go on and on. Yeah, but in the real then, world, we just care about vulnerabilities. We don't care if it's cut and pasted. It's a vulnerability. Just fix the damn stuff. Yeah. So I got a kick out of Sands Institute. Uh, one of the Sands Institute editors, William Murray, was was quoted in the Sands in a recent Sands newsletter uh, news, new, newsletter about this controversy, and he said, instead of disputing the number. Yeah. Adobe should be trying to identify yes. what they are doing fundamentally wrong. Yes. Whether there are 400 or 80, there must be a pattern here somewhere. Well, I don't know about that. So, yeah. Pattern is ineptness. Now, I have to thank Glenn Frazier from tweeting this morning something that just hit the news because I could see me me you know sggrc getting deluged with people making sure i had seen this and wanting to know what it meant so i wanted to let everyone i wanted to get ahead of this one this time <laughs> so thanks glenn aes is still safe um two years ago in may we reported on what's called a related key attack where some secu- some very sharp security researchers had discovered that there was a slight vulnerability in what's called the ski the key scheduling portion of AES and I covered key scheduling for AES in great detail on a podcast we did specifically about how AES works where we completely dissect it and look at it so if anyone's curious you can go back and find that. As has happened repeatedly and happened again, attacks against crypto things, uh, as, as Bruce Schneier has famously said, they only get better. They never get worse. So what's just in the news today, which Glenn picked up on and forwarded to me, is, a, is an advancement of this such that it no longer requires four related keys it basically is a weakness in a single key which has the has a four to one strength reducing effect on aes key strength so for example it takes a 128 bit key and since it's a four to one reduction that's two bits so it has the effect of reducing a 128 bit AES key to 126 bits. Well, that's significant, but we still have vastly more protection than we need need and AES can run at 256 bit keys which aren't affected at all. But but to, but to bring some real world scale to this. Even with this new attack, so-called attack in quotes, which Snyder has already said doesn't really matter because uh, because Bruce has weighed in. He said, um, uh, "No, this is not not he." But the effort to recover a key is still huge. So, for example, the number of steps to find the key 
for AES-128 is in decimal, it's an 8 followed by 37 zeros. So to put this into perspective, on a trillion machines that each could test a billion keys per second, it would still take more than 2 billion years to recover an AES-128 AES bit key. So note that large corporations are believed to have millions of machines and current machines can only test 10 million keys per second. So there is no company or organization that we know of that has that many machines that are nearly that fast. And even if they did, we would have to wait 2 billion years for one single AES-128 key to get broken. So that's, yes, it used to be 8 billion years. Now it's 2 billion years. So this is, you know, it's worth watching. But I wanted to let put everyone's mind at rest. AES has not cracked, but some, you know, two bits worth of weakness was found. And that's, that's significant, but we still have, as far as we know, the strongest cipher around. Oh, and this is actually out of place, but I, something about Firefox 5 has been driving me batty. <laughs> and, if, and I just discovered what was going on this morning. And I wanted to let any of our listeners know, we've talked before about how nice it is to be able to float your mouse over a window and use the scrolling wheel in order to scroll that window without having to click on it, you know, to give it current focus, which I think is just super handy. And in fact, one of my favorite little pieces of freeware is called Cat, Cat something. I want to say Cat Mouse. Yeah. K-A-T-M-O-U-S-E. So when I updated to Firefox 5, it sort of stopped working reliably, which, I, I, again, I just can't stand it. I just – I love having the inertial scroll and for, for like moving through web pages. What I discovered this morning is that it is scrolling the wrong tab. I had opened one of Tavis Ormandy's um, uh, uh, PowerPoint presentations or maybe the PDF, but but it's like paged and – for some reason, as I was closing tabs, I noticed that it was it was on a different page than I had left it. And so by just experimenting this morning, I realized that that successive pages, when they weren't being scrolled by cat mouse visibly, it was a different tab that was receiving the scroll message. So Mozilla, if you guys are listening, I hope you you found this or fixed it in version 6. And if not today in version 6, then in version 7 probably by tomorrow morning. Um, so that would be great because it would be nice to have that fixed. And Leo, yes. you and I talked when um, uh, iPhone 4 came out about the the question of whether Gizmodo was going to be in hot water I, for, yes. for publishing that. Right. So I, I thought I would just m mention that prosecutors in California have decided that they will not file charges against the tech blog Gizmodo for its purchase of an iPhone 4 prototype, uh, which uh, which they bought, and then I guess Jason Chan, an editor at Gizmodo, was was going to potentially be in some hot water for showing us all the iPhone 4, which of course annoyed Steve Jobs right. to no end. 
Um, the guys that sold it to him are still in trouble, probably. Oh, yeah, they got prosecuted. Not. In fact, I think they got convicted. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and a San Mateo County uh, assistant district attorney uh, said that the, diffic- the, the difficulty uh, his office faced in terms of prosecuting Chen was that uh, that Chen and Gizmodo were primarily, in their view, engaged in a journalistic effort to conduct an investigation into the phone so they were protected by the editorial shield law. So, Good. Thank you. That, yes, that was, yeah. I, I think, the right outcome. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I think it was the right outcome to, to prosecute the guys who stole the phone. I, mm-hmm. I think that was also the right thing to do. And then profited by by, yeah, by selling. exactly. So, that was a little sleepy, uh, man. Um, I wanted to acknowledge somebody. Unfortunately, this it flashed by my Twitter feed, and I didn't, so I can't give credit where it's due. Someone mentioned that Lion fixed one of my biggest pet peeves about the Mac, which is you can now drag any window border. You no longer need to separately move the title bar and then resize in the lower right-hand corner. It's like, oh, thank you. So uh, for anyone who misses that feature in, in Mac OS, we have it now. Which is really great. And, um, Leo, when I was up there sitting next to Kevin, you and Kevin were talking about how Lion changed the scrolling direction yeah. so that it was more like a touch screen. So it was like it was taking you guys some time to get used to it. Right. And I refused to put up with that. So <laughs> Of course you did. <laughs> but you could change it. Yes, and yeah. that, I wanted to make sure everyone knew. I just went into preferences, and sure enough, right there is a checkbox saying "Return it to the proper way of scrolling." If you're and using, so, as I am, a trackpad, it actually does make sense. You get used to it pretty pretty darn quickly. But uh, I, I can't say I blame you. And certainly, if you're using a scroll wheel mouse, it doesn't make any sense. You have you know you really do want to change the setting. And, and I, didn't, I didn't have a chance when we were up there doing twit but so is it the idea of like dragging the page yes. rather than dragging the scroll bar precisely Cause, so cause when i move my fingers down. up on the on the uh on the track it moves the page up when i move my fingers down on the track it moves the page down and that's kind of direct drive it certainly makes sense when you're touching the screen there's no question on a pad that's what you should do the issue right. is it's not exactly direct drive when you're using a trackpad. That's 50-50. When you get to a mouse and you're using a scroll wheel, scrolling down moves the page in the op- complete opposite way of how you expect it to go. But, you know, but- gaming has always had this problem. You know, when you do a flight simulator uh, or, or even just <laughs> use a look around <laughs> in a game, forward. there's two different yeah. ways to do it. And uh, exact, it's completely analogous to this situation. And it's different strokes for different folks. Some people change that, invert the mouse look, and some people use a standard mouse look. And, you know, you just do what you like. You just said different strokes for different folks, I which, did. of course, is a great pun. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay. And uh, last week we covered – we did the second in our series on how the internet works uh, while you were in, in trial, Leo, discussing ICMP and UDP. And – I got a bunch – didn't, I didn't realize – I mean I, I'd heard them years ago. But I just wanted to share them with people. A bunch of people tweeted me some, some old longstanding jokes about uh, – of all things. I mean this is serious geek jokeness. Uh, uh, Kevin Panko uh, tweeted. He said, uh, 
I'll, I would tell you a UDP joke, but you might not get it. <laughs> now that's good. That is the geekiest joke. I mean, only geeks would get that, right? Or not, as the case may be. Exactly. I would tell you a UDP joke, <laughs> but you might not get it. And there are about four or five variations on that theme. So I wanted to thank everybody that's who great. sent those to me because I got a kick out of it. That's really good. And then uh, Matthew Steinar tweeted. He said, Steve, hearing you talk about UDP being unreliable reminded me of a joke I read. The best thing about TCP jokes is you always get them. So, <laughs> Even if you have to retransmit once or twice. Yeah. One yeah. way or the other, you're going to get the joke. I love it. Yes. And um, I, I wanted to tell people my plan is next week when I'm up there in person with you, Leo, mm-hmm. I am going to unveil this multi-month project I've been working on. Um, what I have been working on, and I did mention it last week with, with Tom, I've come up with a paper-based cipher, a, a strong encryption that uses nothing but a piece of paper. This is, and, by the way, the holy grail for amateur cryptologists. They're always looking for ways to do non-computer-based, because crypto has been solved really for computers, but non-computer-based yes, crypto. It, well, and so this is called off the grid because it is... It's non-technology. It uses no computers, and it is based on a specially constructed grid, uh, which you use as a reference. And I began working on this immediately after publishing the software or the the, the password haystacks page, because the one thing we still don't have is a way of doing per website passwords where you don't need to write something down or memorize something, but you still have a different password for every website. This encrypts the domain name into a secure password in a, in a way that cannot be reversed. Um, and so I'm going to tell everybody about, my, about a really interesting journey I had uh, in developing it and all about how it works next week when I'm there in the studio with you. Web 3032 uh, in our chat room said, oh, perfect papyrus passwords. <laughs> 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 Actually, you know, Neil Stevenson in the Cryptonomicon came up with, and I don't know, I've, n- I've never really seen it vetted, but um, a, car- a playing card-based crypto system. Um, and I think, I seem to remember that he had, he worked with somebody like Bruce Schneier to uh, validate it as a, uh, oh. as a, as a working uh, crypto system. So it's very interesting. This, And you still do need it uh, because uh, there's spies and... Other things, people who don't have computers, I guess. Well, and the problem, of course, is that if it's in your computer, it is susceptible to being compromised. I mean, we right. had a scare, as we all know, with, with LastPass a few months ago, them worrying that their database had gotten loose. Um, there's some concern that that, that the, the solutions that hash uh, that are running in your browser – could expose your master password. So there's a certain group of people who would just like to have something low-tech. And so this is low-tech but high security. And so I think I I know it's going to be a great episode. The the thing that made me think about it is I want to next talk about TCP, the TCP protocol. We can't do that next week. uh, So that'll be three weeks from now after the Q&A between the off-the-grid crypto system and and uh, and then talking about uh, TCP. 
I did want to share a really neat story um, that's titled Spinrite Saves My Teeth. <laughs> uh, Christian Alexandrov, who's in Sofia City, Bulgaria. Wow. And we can, we can tell that English is not his native language, but, but his is much better than my Bulgarian. So he says, Spinrite did it again. This time, Spinrite saved my teeth. Hello, Steve. I, wanted, I decided I want to share this story with Spinrite followers. I survived a car crash recently caused by drunk driver speeding and having difficulties controlling his BMW. This driver hit the car behind mine and it hit mine. After all ended, I had some injuries on my head, nothing serious, but the, mo- but the most of my injuries required dental help. At this time, I was unable to afford such serious interaction from a dentist in terms of money. But I had no choice. Health is more important. A friend of mine is a dentist who has the equipment to heal me and the qualifications to do so. I was about to ask him to give me time to pay him with few separate payments in time. He told me he cannot do much. His computer works poorly and cannot access all patient records, <laughs> including my dental record. I see where we're going here. You see where <laughs> this is going. I told him I can fix this as soon as pain is relieved to be able to focus on the task at hand. He gave me pain-killing injection and allowed me to fix his PC. I booted Spinrite on level 4 to check his drive. We got to the problem late. The drive was in deep trouble already, but we got lucky because it was not too late. We quickly saw green R, meaning recovered, icons when Spinrite began its work. Spinrite found two areas that were bad. One contained one Windows XP system DLL file needed for the OS to work at all. The second area contained pieces of the database with the dental records. While the dentist was trying to focus on my first healing session, I had firm belief in Spinrite. Mm. After two days of constant work, presumably on the hard drive and not his mouth, Spinrite completed the hard drive maintenance reporting that it successfully recovered all damaged areas and marked them as unusable for, for the drive. On the drive map, I saw two green R icons, which was what I was hoping for. I repeated the process. On the map, I saw two B icons on the places where the green R icons were before, indicating these areas will not be used again. After the second pass on level four, Spinrite says that there were no bad areas. Great. We rebooted the PC and Jaws hit the floor, which I thought was an interesting pun in this case. Um, The system booted so very fast And the database with all dental records was there in perfect condition, opened in a second, and responding very fast to inputs and searches. The dentist was so happy that he asked me for advice how to prevent this. I told him to buy two NAS servers and use them as redundant backup for his data. There you go. I told told him two in case one dies to have another copy for precaution. The dentist's promised me he will heal me for free. Then, a few healing sessions later, we made an arrangement. I will maintain and fix his computers. 
In return, he will heal me every time I need dental help. I have four more healing sessions until I'm fully healed and fully recovered. Thank you, Steve, for this great piece of software, and thank you, Steve and Leo, for this great podcast. I wish best of luck to GRC.com and twit.tv from a happy Spinrite user. That's great. So that's I a just lot of demo. Six or seven uh, sessions. That's Ooh. we're talking ten grand, twenty grand. That's Boy. a lot of work. And he must have been in pain because he said yeah. he needed an injection in order to even be able to think straight. So thanks for the, thank you for the report, Christian. <laughs> Don't forget the floss. Actually, we have a show for that, Floss Weekly, every uh, every Wednesday. Ah, right there we go. <laughs> Security Of course we do. <laughs> hey, we've got questions, 12 of them. Great questions from you, our, uh, our listeners and viewers. And uh, Steve's going to answer them in just a second. Before we do that, though, I would very much like to uh, talk about our friends at Netflix very briefly. Uh, and invite you to try it free for 30 days. The Netflix streaming is $7.99 a month. So I think this is clearly the best deal in entertainment out there. And you could try it for free for 30 days if you're not a Netflix member. Now, if you already are, you probably know all about this, and I'm preaching to the choir. But tell your friends and family. You know, Abby's been watching a lot of Netflix uh, and uh, lately, and of course, she speaks French, and so it's. I love the recommendations. They've now given me a whole bunch of recommendations about marriage, strong female leads, and French language movies, goofy French language movies. So uh, <laughs> look at Mad Men. This is something I'm going to watch tonight, actually. And this is one of the things I love about streaming is you can just you could pick up a movie uh, on uh, you know browsing around and watch it immediately. You don't wait for the DVD to come. You don't have to go to the movie store. I didn't know. You know Burning Man's coming up uh, Labor Day weekend. Tickets are sold out. I've never been. I thought I'd love to know more, and I didn't even know. But there was a documentary made about uh, Burning Man in 2005 which I can now watch instead of going, which is going to, you know, keep the dust out of my hair. So if you're interested, give it a try, netflix.com slash twit. And if you already have Netflix, please do us a favor and uh, tell a friend, netflix.com slash twit for 30 days free. All right, Steve, I've been uh, I've been perusing these questions. There's some good ones in here. Are you ready? You betcha. All right. Question one comes from Stuart Henry on Twitter, quoting Stu. A winemaker and web developer just drove up, up the road a piece in Napa, California. He says, do ICMP packets have a TTL value? You better define that one for us. Well, okay. So this sort of hails back to last week's episode and three weeks ago, uh, the first two episodes in our How the Internet Works series, which we are firing up. And the answer is yes, because... Everything that the Internet carries is enclosed in an IP packet. So remember that the IP packet is the sort of the we, – we used the analogy three weeks ago. You'll remember this, Leo, of, of the nest Russian dolls right. where you've got a smaller one inside, a larger one inside, a larger one inside, a larger one. Well, or you could also think of it as like an envelope inside an envelope inside an envelope. Well, the outer envelope is – the IP container, which has the own, and this was the brilliance of the internet designers, only the things, the minimum necessary information for getting the packet from from the source IP to the destination IP. So it contains fields for each of those. But for example, there's no port numbers there because that's not about two different machines. That's about the more of the content of the packet, which on this level of the hierarchy, we don't care about. We only want it to get from A to B, So, but we also need the minimum amount of information 
for that job. And one of those is the TTL value because we need packets not to make the mistake of living forever. They have to die if for some reason there's a router loop that is sending them in a, in, in, in a big circle. The, we want those packets to expire as we discussed last week. So, so yes, everything, ICMP, UDP, TCP, you know, all the other protocols, because they are contained inside the IP envelope, inherit all the characteristics of that containing envelope, one of which is a TTL. So that's fundamental to a packet on the Internet, just like the source IP and destination IP. Cool. I'm sorry I missed the first two of those episodes. I'll have to go back and listen. Yeah, actually, last week, we've, I've, I've had a, a huge amount of positive feedback from people. I, th- I guess I missed, I don't know, I'm in the zone for these, and we're, we're developing sort of a, a style that a lot of people like, saying that, gee, you know, they thought they knew how the Internet worked yeah. until they heard this, and now they really, got, now I really get it. So I, I really, really love that, that the beginning stuff. In fact, somebody sent me an email saying, <laughs> it was really funny. Uh, just today I got this email saying, you should do more help and how-to. I'd really like to know more about like how operating systems work, how the Internet works. And I said, well, check out. I think people, because it says security now, think, oh, well, I'm not interested in security. But we, you've done so much great basic education in how not only uh, uh, security like crypto works, but how the computers in general work. This is a really well, great remember, series. we did that whole series on, on right. the, the fundamentals of, of how computers operate. From, from ground zero all the way up. And I think that that... Well, uh, Yep. You couldn't get much better than that. Mike Kowalczyk uh, with question two in Montgomery, New Jersey. He's wondering about IP stack vulnerabilities. Steve is a longtime listener. I want to thank you for the great show and for your insightful coverage of all things security. I'm enjoying your series on how the Internet works. In last week's episode 313, ICMP and UDP, you discussed the IP stack that resides on all routers and Internet-connected devices. My question is, what is there to prevent malware from modifying the IP stack? Just one possible attack that came to mind would be to modify the stack on a router or computer to always decrement the TTL, the time to live, to zero so that no packets are ever delivered. How is the IP stack implemented or what's in place to prevent this from happening? Oh, boy. Uh, Thanks and keep up the great work, Mike. Okay, so I haven't really – we've used the term stack, but I've never – explicitly defined it. I'll probably – It's the kind of – the stack that we talk about in memory, a memory stack, right? Correct. It is not. Okay. Um, That's confusing. The I, yeah, it, it is. And I'm, I will discuss it again, not in a Q&A, just because it's an important concept. But it's worth mentioning here. The, 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 it's a conceptual stack which mirrors the hierarchy of the Internet's packets. It's, for example, the normal term is a TCP IP stack. And the idea is that you have an, the application which is that wants to communicate like your browser or your email client or your DNS client. And it sends its data down to the operating system which, which conceptually – has organized these layers in a stack, a stack of layers. So, for example, the um, 
data that the web server is going to use uses TCP. So that data gets put into a TCP packet, meaning that it's wrapped with the TCP headers. Then it goes, it drops to the next layer down in the stack, where which is the IP layer. And so whatever comes from above gets wrapped in an IP layer. Then it goes to the next layer, which is the physical layer, the Ethernet layer, which wraps it in an Ethernet packet, and then off it goes out of the machine. Packets coming back in get the reverse treatment. First, the Ethernet wrapper is taken off. It's checked and taken off and then passed up the stack to the next layer, which is the IP layer. The, the, the stack examines that, makes sure that it all looks right, the checksums are it's the correct IP address and so forth. If so, it 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 removes the IP wrapper. It essentially sort of opens the envelope and take out, takes out what's in that layer of the envelope out and then passes it up the stack to the next layer, which is going to be UDP or TCP or ICMP, whatever it is that was wrapped in the IP layer. So that's where this stack concept comes from. It, it's, a, it's a stack of... This sort of re represents a hierarchy of protocols. So as, as we move down, we're wrapping things in layer after layer like these Russian dolls. And as we go up the stack, we're reversing the process, taking successive wrappers off until we finally get up to just the raw data that we actually wanted to send to a, a remote point. So Mike's question has a little bit of confusion here because... He refers to routers and computers as being synonymous in this way, and they're not. Routers don't have stacks. They process IP packets, but they, it, it, you can talk to a router um, where it is the endpoint of your discussion. For example, you can telnet to a router using the telnet protocol over TCP. Um, and there it's, an end, it's a TCP endpoint. You're connecting with it. But the actual routing process doesn't involve a stack. The router takes in an IP packet, looks to see where it's going, and then decrements the TTL as, as we just discussed in the first question. And as Mike references, if that time to live hits zero, the router says, well, this, this packet is dead. And so it doesn't forward it. Instead, it sends a, a note back to the sender saying, hey, by the way, this packet never got to its destination. It died before, before it got to its final, its final target destination. But routers themselves, in the routing aspect of them, don't have stacks. The, the IP stack it involves interpreting the protocol and routers really don't do that they just receive packets they don't care what it contains they look at where it's going they make sure it's valid to forward it and then they send it out uh over whatever link is closest to where it's going based on the routing table which we'll be talking about uh in a future episode so so my question with that background is What's to prevent these stacks or, for example, the, the software in the router from being altered so that they don't work? And the answer is, well, only the same kind of protections we normally have. For example, this, the, the systems 
stack is located down in the kernel where software is not supposed to be able to get to it at all and the kernel works to protect itself. So it's trying not to allow the OS to be altered and the stack is part of the OS. So those same protections pertain. But remember that any software could, rather than like setting the TTL to zero so that the packet would die, it could just not, it, the, the router could just say, I'm not going to send the packet. So there, there are all kinds of things that could break that would cause routing not to work um, that are actually even simpler than setting the TTL to zero. Um, you know, just choosing not to route it would, would do the same thing. I mean, I think there are a lot of hack attacks that involve uh, hacking the TCP stack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a very common attack. Uh, in fact, sometimes uh, you know that happened because you'll remove spyware and you'll lose Internet access. And that's because the spyware was embedded in the TCP IP stack. Yep. There's something called an LSP, a layered service provider, which is uh, a, a protocol stack in Windows. And, and traditionally, spyware has installed itself in there. And when and it, it, it the way it, it works is you have to sort of knit everybody together. Right. And if you just yank that out, you just lose all your connectivity with right. the Internet. Jared in Western Australia has a question for you about trace route. Uh, he says, what determines the exact path taken by packets? When you do a trace route, does the path taken always remain the same, or does it change from moment to moment? Well, it's a great question. And part of the original genius of the guys that designed packet switching was they realized it doesn't matter. The idea is... You, you have this vast network of routers that are interconnected and you inject a packet somewhere, anywhere in this single global, I mean, it became global now, network where it's got a destination IP and the job of any router receiving that packet is to forward it on in what it thinks is the best direction. This system is as robust as it is because if a link goes down between two routers, well, then the router goes, oh, I don't have that link, which used to be my preferred link for that packet. So I'm going to send it out of this link. So packets, the only they're sort of like little autonomous bits of information who that has a destination address and they're just going to try to find their way to that address one way or the other. So it's often the case when, like, something is, is flaky, there's something called router um, flapping where an interface is flapping, which is the term used for kind of coming up and down. It's, it's, it looks good for a second, then something goes wrong, and, and, and the, the link is broken, then, then it comes up again, then, then it goes down again. It, and so network engineers call that flapping. So if you had – if you were, like – Doing a trace route over a path that happened to have a flaky link like that, then you might find that from one moment to another, the, the actual hops being taken along the way would vary. And there's really nothing wrong with that. Everything on the Internet works because there is there really is no notion of the proper path. There's just we want the packets to get there. Right. And... What's really interesting, we'll be talking about this in TCP, is that 
ICMP and UDP, which are just sort of raw best effort protocols, there's nothing to say that the packets even arrive in the same order. You could send three packets out and have, because of, of interface congestion or a link that goes down, you might have those three packets take different routes running over links of different speed and they could arrive in a different order. So obviously you don't want files being transferred, having their blocks of, you know, like their buffers of data arriving in, a, in like in being reordered in a different sequence. So TCP deals with things like out of sequence packet um, ordering, whereas UDP and ICMP that we discussed last week don't. So um, the, the whole network works even if the actual specific path taken varies from one moment to the next, which is just so cool. Question for Bill in Michigan asks and reminds, not ICMP, but IDENT. In uh, 313, Steve, last show, you were uh, trying to remember how an IRC server was checking. If you were there, I'm sure you were thinking of IDENT. That's TCP port 113, a port that's usually not stealthed. In fact, we had, I know you know this, Steve, because this was a whole big thing about uh, yep. whether, whether uh, uh, IDENT port should be open or not. Um, and not ICMP, which we were talking about at the time. I think that's what Zone Alarm has had as an adaptive reply. This IDENT check was also used on SMTP and FTP. To this day, routers may be stealth for every port except port 113 as they try to reduce service calls since by not replying to port uh, 113, sending mail was causing, causing problems if this IDENT handshake was timing out. I think that's mostly older clients. But I might be wrong. As you recall, you would usually respond with your host and username in the old days of a standard Unix environment. Hope this helps, but you probably have a zillion of these by now. Bill uh, in Michigan, and who's regular in our chat room as Bill underscore MI. Yeah, and he's actually a regular contributor over in GRC's news groups. He's great. I and love so, Bill. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, so thank you, Bill. Um, what happened last week, Leo, is that we were discussing ICMP, and I just it had been so long that I had since I had thought about this. I thought, you know, there I remembered that there was something that was that was this, and I couldn't remember. What, right. I I sort of knew that I wasn't sure, but anyway. So Bill did pick up on it. I wanted to to close this uh, little link for our listeners that it was that port because I and I one of the things that I liked about Zone Alarm was it is the only firewall at the time that did this adaptively. If if you if unsolicited probes to port 113 came in, Zone Alarm had, had them as stealth. It would drop the packets. But if you were in the process of establishing a connection, for example, to a remote SMTP server, that, and the SMTP server pinged you, essentially, by trying to connect to your IDENT port, then Zone Alarm was smart enough to say, oh, this is coming in from an IP that we're in the process of trying to connect to, so do allow that because we don't want to upset that remote server by by having it wonder whether there's really anybody home or not. So yeah, so thank you, Bill. Yeah, you knew I, this is one of those things that Steve has known for so long. That yeah, I just got. <laughs> it happens to me all the time now. There's stuff like, oh, of course I knew that. You knew yeah. that because you've dealt with it directly with Shields Up. All I mean, this was a big issue with Shields Up. Yep. Um, Adam Gilman in Minneapolis, Minnesota, has questions about how the Internet works. Steve, let me first off start by saying I'm fairly new to security now. Well, welcome, Adam. I've only been watching for a few months now and was first 
turned on a twit by Kevin Rose when watching Dignation. Thank you, Kevin. By the way, just a uh, note, Kevin just tweeted this morning that his dad passed away, so our condolences oh. uh, to Kevin Rose. Uh, and I've met his dad, and he, he was a great guy. I was he very proud of him. couldn't have been very old. I don't think he was. Um, mm. Maybe maybe uh, early 60s at the, old, at the mm. oldest. Um, so probably a bit of a shock. So, Kevin, our, yeah. our sympathies and condolences to you. Um, Adam continues, I'm loving your How the Internet Works segment. Most others like this are very high-level and boring. <laughs> but yours is fascinating. That's you see we don't do high level here. This show we do down. We, this is the assembly language of podcasts. Down to the mesh, down to the metal. In the last episode, you were talking about packet TTL and routers responding to dead packets. It made me think: Wouldn't this be a problem, and perhaps a source for DDoS attacks? If an attacker would send out packets to random destinations with TTLs less than the necessary to reach the destination, and then spoof their source IP so it's the same as the attacker's target machine IP. So it looked like it was sending itself, I guess, a packet. Or no, uh, so if the, it would be the IP that the attacker wanted to attack. Oh, 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 I get it. So you get all these knacks. Wouldn't that turn all the Internet routers into bots generating mass amounts of ICMP time, uh, time-exceeded packets? I'm not going to do the page turn here. Uh, towards the attacker's target. I get it. I get it. Wouldn't this yep. be a problem as the packets are being generated by the Internet routers uh, are doing what they're supposed to do by sending all these ICMP time-exceeded packets back towards the source IP that the attacker spoofed in the original packets? I'm sure that they've got... route. Well, let Steve answer this. Hopefully this makes sense. I'm just getting into Internet security. I'm not sure if I'm missing something. What, what do you say? Um, he is absolutely right. And this is... It turns out that... We went through a period of time, maybe, what, 10 years ago, where there were lots of small botnets that, are be, that were being run by script kitties, and it was sort of early technology, and this was one of the many ways to create bounced traffic, is you could send, you, 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 could, you could certainly send a time exceeded or, or a packet out that would expire but you could also just ping you know ping uh, generally generates an echo so you could just for example ping routers or de- destinations any uh, any remote ip that will respond to a ping you could spoof the source ip so that it looked like it was coming from the your attacker and um, and you'd get in trouble. The other thing you could do was you could send a – you could try to uh, establish a TCP connection. So you would send a TCP SYN packet to any web server that would send a SYN ACK – and we'll be discussing what all this is and when we talk about TCP in detail – send a SYN ACK back to the apparent source. But if you spoof the source IP, then it would actually go – to your victim. So what happened was it looked like all these different websites were attacking you. So, I mean, that this is an, an example of one of the many ways that uh, bad guys have found over the, over the evolution of the Internet to, to get up to some mischief. And it absolutely does hide the attacker's identity. It requires backtracking to figure out where these things are really coming from and you can't use the source ip you have to literally follow the traffic from one router to the next in order to come back 
so yes, that I mean uh, that's a perfect example of one of the ways that this beautiful technology can and has been abused over and over and over. Question six. Robert in Pasadena, Texas. I didn't know there was a Pasadena in Texas. Comments that our sci-fi recommendations are excellent. Steve, I just have to say, I recently took your recommendations for the Lost Fleet series, and I love it. I'm halfway through the sixth book now, and I only started a week and a half ago. Wow. Do you have recommendations for books of similar style? I could never get into the Peter F. Hamilton books, but I fell in love with the Lost Fleet series. Who writes the Lost Fleet series? Um, okay, so... The shoot. Um, Should I look it up? If you go- if Google it, you'll find it immediately. Um, I is that really sci-fi? Like- is that our friend from Sci-Fi Arizona? No, no, no. Uh, this is something that I found because I was looking for series Zach book Campbell. series. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I talked about these. What I loved about these was this is like big, like military space fleet movements where but but in real detail where the where the 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 constraints of speed of light and and speed of acceleration and deceleration are mixed into the plot so that this commander who's actually uh, he he was he was in suspended animation for a generation during which time um, a huge sort of civil war among human colonies uh, got underway, and all of the people who knew real fleet movement got killed. And so he gets found in a in a life support capsule. And this is I'm not giving away much because this you, you get this in the first few pages of the first book. And he's he's resuscitated, and it turns out that. Technically, he's got seniority because, because <laughs> he's an old guy. <laughs> exactly. Even though he's still young, he's, he's you know 150 years ago was you know he he was like in charge of things, and so he remembers how to fight space battles mm. with knowledge that has been lost from the human race. And I have to say, I mean, I really enjoyed these. So I did want to let people know about the Lost Fleet series, but. I can sort of understand what Robert means about the Hamilton books. I mean, I love the Hamilton books. Uh, I think we wrap up our Q&A with someone who agrees with me. Um, and, and the next thing I'm going to be reading as soon as I finish with Freedom TM will be um, I'm going to plow into the Galactic Center. No, that's not. I just finished those. Uh, the Hamilton re- – uh, help me out. You, you just read those, Leo. We were talking oh, about Oh, well, the Void the, Trilogy. The Void Trilogy, Oh, yes. man, is that good. But I do have another series that I really enjoyed that's sort of more along the lines of the Lost Fleet. A little easier, a little breezier. I mean, you know, here, Robert, he's been reading. He's in the sixth book after a week and a half. Yeah, First that's pretty all, Robert, breezy. You couldn't do that with Hamilton. <laughs> no. And so, so, Robert, slow down because we're going to run out of books for you if you keep reading at this Although page. I'm looking on, on Campbell's uh, webpage and he says the next Lost Fleet uh, manuscript was just turned in. <gasps> There's going to be another one? Yeah, it's uh, Lost Yay. Fleet Beyond the Frontier novel, Invincible. Not till May, but okay. it is coming out. And he uh. is uh, he's in town right now, or he's in Reno anyway, at the World's SF and Fantasy Convention going on right now in uh, Reno, Nevada. So, Well, I, I, the, the Lost Fleet series, it, if, if I mean, you could read one, and if it grabbed you, you could know that you've got five more following it because right. – 
I mean, they're they're really interesting. So, the other series that I really liked also along the same line is not like Peter F. Hamilton grade, but it's called Helfort's War. F E L F O R T apostrophe S Helfort's War, and it's a series by Graham Sharp Paul, and Michael Helfort is a newly minted academy graduate uh, in set in the future who happens to be good at at stuff and i will <laughs> leave it there now the one annoying thing is we've got the first four books but it turns out and i and i thought that the books 1 through 4 was it but book 4 was sort of the half and all the other books finished off so that you weren't left hanging book 4 ended with a cliffhanger and I, now i'm waiting for book 5 and I and I'm really looking forward to it. So I really enjoyed these, uh, but be warned that this this series is not complete. And in the case of the Lost Fleet series, I had to wait for book number six because, but it was worth waiting for to see how he wrapped it up. And now I guess there's going to be a number seven. So I'm I'm delighted for that. Well, it's all stylistic, you know. I mean, I think um, I'm not big. In fact, whenever Peter F. Hamilton starts doing space battles, I just lose. I can't follow it. I like, the, and then he, and, and so if you like that kind of thing, then obviously uh, it, the uh, Lost Fleet series would be great for you. Um, it's just different. There's what's nice is there, even within the genre of science fiction, there are many, many subgenres, and right. uh, you know whatever you like, there's something for uh, everybody. So that's great. Right. I appreciate. So, I, so I, I agree. I appreciate the recommendations. Always looking yeah, for something and, new and, to read. And, and and so for what for what it's worth, if you like the Lost Fleet. Helfert's War is sort of it has a similar feel to it, and uh, and Lord knows Robert will be done by the day after tomorrow. With, you know, <laughs> yeah, the rate he's reading with, with with those four books. <laughs> Question seven: David Taylor, Atlanta, Georgia. He shares some comments about the ICMP ping security issues you talked about. I've been in networking and network security for quite a few years, and the internet backgrounders have been a nice. Nostalgic reflection on how things got started. From my paranoid security background, I thought I had a few interesting points to some of the comments you made in last week's podcast. You mentioned about the ICMP echo request reply being filtered these days for security reasons. One of the reasons you didn't mention was one that I always considered a pretty neat idea and a strong reason to block ICMP in, uh, in and out of a corporate network. Someone quite a few years ago came up with a notion of using the ping request reply traffic as a tunneling mechanism. ICMP echo reply request packets can be any size that this is wild can be any size you like. Oh, I've lost it. Uh, it's the page turns that kill me <laughs> from the minimum packet size up to the max path uh, that's uh, allowed by the MTU. The uh, payload is generally random data or a chunk of unallocated memory thrown in to pad out the packets. Data leaks anyone, and it's commonly ignored. Why don't they just put zeros in there? I don't know. I suspect you've probably seen the trick as you've been around the block a few times, but just in case this one snuck by, someone decided to use the payload to hide encrypted data. This made for a pretty sneaky back channel for controlling a machine that's been hacked. You send him a ping in that little ping, and then there's this whole rest of the packet that's got encrypted data in it. Many sites block incoming traffic but not outgoing traffic. With this in mind, the firewalls in many places, especially at home, will happily let these ping packets pass all day long unnoticed, containing your passwords or whatever else. Just thought I'd pass this one along. Dave Taylor, CISSP. Yeah, I did want to wow. uh, just sort of acknowledge that. Actually, um, in my spec for... 
uh, my VPN uh, using uh, ICMP as one means of establishing a connection is already in my notes. So I'm well aware that ICMP is a general purpose uh, and, and very capable data carrier. So it's absolutely the case. And, it, it, and as I was mentioning last week, um, there is normally when you get an echo reply, the reply packet contains the echo request so that the, the recipient can see what it was that it, that it sent out that generated that response. And so you are able to put whatever data. Uh, sometimes I've, I, I've seen just like, you know, the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so forth. Or sometimes, as, as David says, no one even bothers to init the, uh, you know, in initialize the contents of the packet. They they just say, yeah, we'll just send out whatever's there because it, you know, it doesn't really matter. You just but get it, random it, stuff, it actually, right? yeah, it actually is a payload carrying protocol. Wow. Uh, question eight: Jeff Hornung, or Hornung, in Indianapolis, admonishes us that corporate IT is not so bad. Yes, encryption is tough. First off, I love your broadcast. I've listened to them all. Of course, I'm a spin-right owner. But in the past, I've been somewhat dismayed by the negative comments directed toward corporate IT and suggestions on how to get around the controls that we, as corporate IT professionals, must put in place. We want to do the right thing to protect our customers and our employees and, of course, comply with HIPAA and GLBA and PCI and DOI and many other regulations. I think you two have great experience and speak with some authority, but I don't think either of you have experience in corporate IT for today's finance industries, and I think we'll both cop to that. That's right. Yep. So if I could give you some tidbits from my perspective. Recently, you mentioned there's no overhead to decrypting all this data. While I'd love to see everything encrypted all the time, it actually is a very big deal. Uh, some people responded to your comments but missed a major issue. My company has Unix, Linux, Windows servers, IBM Z-Series mainframe, IBM i-Series, that's AS400 platforms. The hundreds of applications that we, we must use to communicate across all the platforms and systems, internal subnets and firewalls and databases. They perform thousands of lookups and file transfers daily. To have all of these using fully encrypted data all the time is a lot more overhead than you're giving credit for. CPU processing translation going from probably Big Endian to Little Endian and ASCII to Epcadic and things like that. And key management are significant and time-consuming. Keep up the great work, but please spend some time getting to know our situations. Jeff. Well, for what, it, for what it's worth, um, I really never meant my comments to refer to intranet encryption, but rather internet encryption. So the idea being, you know... In my and, and I guess I wasn't clear about this, Jeff. So I and to any other listeners, I apologize that when I'm talking about the need for encryption, uh, I, we've talked about the need to encrypt databases, which I think is crucial. Um, and that, so that's not about network encryption. That's about encrypting the data at rest while it's at rest, so that if it you lose control of it, all it is is pseudo random noise, and then. Where I'd like to see encryption 24 7, 365, and forever is when it's moving out across the public internet where, where remote servers would be using SSL and TLS certificates in order to uh, establish and enforce encryption. So, um, so while, so, so, so I really understand what Jeff is saying that internally, you know, to just be, 
huge a huge amount of overhead for very little return for example get you know managing certificates that are expiring on all sorts of machines and i can imagine you just pull your hair out but it's really hopefully you've got firewalls and and border security such that that you can you can have trusted information inside your corporate intranet and then deal with encryption for communications outside on the internet all right, here we go. Question nine from Andy Williams. I always loved his music. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, he wonders about a good CPU for projects. Steve, I've been thinking about really getting into some toy OS development, and I was wondering what CPU you thought would be the best. I'd love uh, – it could be real or emulated, old or new. I'd love to have your professional opinion. Thank you, Andy. You were, you were going to do when you retire someday. you got all those PDP-8s here behind you. You were going to yep. do a PDP-8 operating system because that's a simple processor for for something like that. Yeah, having I have to say, having written a bunch of code for it as I did, you know, for in order to make those lights flash that way and 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 so forth, I'm thinking that it's just too annoying to write to a 12-bit <laughs> instruction set. I agree I mean, with you. Know, you. <laughs> yeah, the thing's got. You know, it's got a three-bit opcode, so a total of eight instructions. And wow. I spent all my time, you know, basically the the accumulator. It's got one accumulator and a and a multiplier quotient register. It was just a pain in the butt. So if I think what I want to do is something on a on a instructions that I really enjoy. But I did recently survey what was going on with development platforms for like small processors for the uh the the infamous portable sound blaster project and i found something that i really like a lot there of course is the uh arduino project that i know you and andy have talked about um you know arduino is a it's a it's a an, an interpreter that runs on a number of small embeddable processors the problem is for me and it's i think for for our our questioner and, and and listener Andy, it probably isn't the right solution because he's talking about toy OS development. Right. What I found is a fantastic little board. It's only twenty nine ninety five. That is twenty nine dollars and ninety five cents. Wow. It uses a state of the art ARM Cortex M three processor. The, this Cortex M three processor has five hundred twelve k of program flash memory 64k of ram on in the processor hardware brought out to to pins is a is a 10100 ethernet usb 20 host device and and on the fly usb port two can buses which is uh, you know the 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 in the industrial bus used often in cars four uarts uh, universal asynchronous receiver transmitters two or three i squared c buses two ssp buses and an i squared s bus a tw- uh, eight channel 12 bit analog digital converter 10 bit digital analog converter seven pulse width modulators and on and on and on it does a 32 by 32 multiply in a single cycle you know it is a it is a state of the art cortex m3 arm processor for 30 bucks and 
the entire tool chain, the development tool chain for Windows, Mac, and Linux is free for this thing. Oh, that's so cool. $30 is your out-of-pocket cost. It's got a USB port that you plug into the machine and then just go crazy. And the free RTOS operating system is available for it. So you could start with something um, on an existing little o, a free real-time operating system platform and then just start playing. So um, it's what I'm going to be using as the heart of the the um, the acoustic experiments that I'll be doing. And I would recommend it for anyone who just sort of wants to play with something. And you can program it in C, C++, or in its own uh, native thumb language. Neat. Yeah. That's a fun fun thing to do, I think. Oh, yeah. There's so much, you know, I wish life were longer. There's so many cool oh, and Leo. fun. Gosh, I wish I were 12 right now. Yeah, no kidding. Oh. No kidding, all the options. And, and yet robotics. I have to say, you know, we, we set up the ham shack in the corner, and uh, mm-hmm. it's so cool. But one of the hams I was talking to, we, we're getting a lot of noise, and there's a ton of RF noise in the environment oh. these days. You know, we're downtown, so it could be PG&E Transformers. It could be neon signs. It could be the 802.11 in this building. <laughs> it could be our fluorescent lights. It could, you know, there's so many, there's so much RF yes. in the environment now. And one of the hams was saying, oh, you should have seen it in the 50s. <laughs> it was quiet. It was calm. Because none of this stuff was out there right then. You know, Interesting. So, um, uh in some ways, it might have been better to be kids when we were kids because there were fewer choices. You could build a portable dog killer. You could do a heath kit or you could maybe be a ham. Now there's an infinite amount of choices. It's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? Yeah. I just It's so much fun. And I would love to – man, I would love to do this. I'd like to do some Arduino projects. I, I want to do more ham stuff. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Here's a, uh, an email from HK Shanghai. He's an expat living in China. A uh, little view on Telex. He says, being an expat in China, I smile whenever you refer to trusting the Hong Kong post office. Whoever they are, we say. But on to the meat of the matter. When you mentioned Telex last week, I was quite excited. There are many ways to get around the Chinese firewall, the great firewall of China. VPN will work, proxies a lot of people use. But Telex, believe it or not, is a new one. It would be cool to set up the Telex application, but I don't have any idea how to do it, and it's not at all clear from the website. Could you help? Any help would be appreciated. Telex would be helpful to get websites like Google+, Facebook, Twitter, IMDb, YouTube, all of these blocked in China. Uh, Hulu, too. P.S. with an average network speed of 140 kilob... I guess he's saying kilobytes per second. GRC.com loads faster than Google.com in Shanghai, China. You know, I have to just a little plug for hams the stuff that hams are doing with data uh like psk 31 um telex rtty this is exactly what hams do and and china and uh, asia in general is full of hams amateur radio operators interesting and hard to hard to block that with hard to block but easy to track unfortunately (laughs) ah good point you are emitting radiation yeah yes so what he's referring to, Leo, uh, is something we talked about during one of the two uh, episodes you missed. There's something called telex.cc. Is, I think that's this website. But I wanted to let HK and anyone else who was wondering know that as far as I know, this isn't yet actually online. This was a paper that a bunch of, of – uh, that uh, some security researchers put together that talked about a, an extremely clever way of – 
intercepting TCP connection setup, that is SSL secure setup, where the the nature of the key being negotiated would contain information uh, sort of in a um, uh, in an encrypted fashion so that it provided additional information that allowed somebody outside of the blocking perimeter to reroute your traffic. I don't think it exists in a in a ready-to-go fashion. Uh, I think so far it's just a, a technical capabilities paper that said, hey, this would work, so keep your eyes open. So certainly if, if we hear more about it, we will, I will talk about it on the podcast. Really interesting idea. Yeah. There's always Morse code. The original digital. Exactly. Tom Corwin in New York. New York has some additional information on GoDaddy and their EV SSL certs. Steve, it was nice that GoDaddy wrote to correct you on their pricing and that you chose to air it and share it. But there's one important thing they didn't say. 99 bucks for an EV SSL cert is only the price you pay when you first buy that. After that, 250 bucks a year. Mm. I had a client for whom I purchased an EV SSL for a cert from GoDaddy. After the first year was up, client was automatically charged 250 bucks for the renewal. I called GoDaddy to ask what he was going on, and the GoDaddy rep said, $99 for the first year, 250 for the renewal. I asked, why should I just buy a new one instead of renewing the current one? He said, sure, if you want to go through the validation process again. This made me so mad. I felt like I was being extorted for money and vowed never to do business with GoDaddy again. The $99 price is a total misrepresentation. It's a, it's a teaser price. Thought yep. you and the listeners should all know. Yep. So, you know, you and I talked about how upset I was when GoDaddy, without my authorization, tried to reauthorize or tr- tried to renew a, certifi- a certificate that I had allowed to expire. Right. Nowhere on their site was I able to go back and tell them, no, I don't want it um, expired. And then they complained when they couldn't authorize my card because fortunately I had used one of those PayPal one-use credit card numbers uh, to buy the cert with GoDaddy. I was just playing around with with, with that PayPal service and sure enough, it saved me. So, you know, no thanks, GoDaddy. I'm going to DigiCert. Yeah. We, we, I, I still am moving my, in the process of moving our, our uh, registrations to hover from GoDaddy only because uh, it's, you know, so difficult. But um, yep. we don't use uh, SSL on any of our sites. Maybe we will. Right. Maybe we should at some point. Finally, Philip Hofstetter in uh, Zurich, Switzerland writes, Peter F. Hamilton, a huge thank you. He says, hi, Steve. After hearing you and Leo praise Peter F. Hamilton's work so many times last December. Sorry about that. Uh, I listened to Fallen Dragon and was completely blown away. But now, when you brought him up again about four weeks ago in the podcast, I finally accepted that I will hopelessly fall behind listening to your show <laughs> and started in with reality dysfunction in its audiobook version. You cannot, he says this in all caps, you cannot possibly imagine how much fun I'm having. This is by far the most enjoyable kind of entertainment I have ever consumed. I haven't read this yet. i got to get this book. This book is so mind-blowingly good, I can't even find words to describe it. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the time you took to tell us about these masterpieces, Philip. Wow. I'm a Peter F. Hamilton fan, but this is this is the original one we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. That you, you, long... Wait, wait, you, you have not read it? No. Oh, Leo. I got to oh, get it. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've got time. <laughs> Plenty of time, Steve. You know what I do? I yeah. get them on audiobooks, and then I just drive around the block a lot. 
the reality dysfunction series. I think it's four. Yes, it's four huge oh, hardbacks great. or eight pa- or eight paperbacks. Oh, great! And it it went on a little bit long for me. So I mean, but if it's an audiobook format, uh, maybe. Oh no, Robert said in Texas that he. Uh, you know, he, he he's the guy that reads a book every every four hours. So the, the, these would slow him down. But I don't think yeah, this I, is I, unfortunately. I don't think it is on Audible. Unfortunately, some of the uh, older Peter F. Hamilton they just started putting Peter F. Hamilton on Audible. So oh, yeah. Well. Anyway, I did for our listeners who have not yet discovered Peter. Um, I really I recommend Fallen Dragon. It's a standalone novel. Yep. Really good, gives you a good introduction to Hamilton's style, and then boy, you're in for plenty of reading uh, if you enjoy his stuff. And I did mention that some of his older stuff would be coming out in in, in print that had been out of print, and I'll try to keep an eye on, uh, let people know when that's available. The um, the shoot, I can't think of the guy's name now. It's a he's sort of a spy with with ESP powers, so. Uh, Greg Mandel, that's the guy. The Greg Man- Mandel series is going to be coming out from, from Peter. Uh, apparently, Reality Dysfunction is on Kindle, so that's good. I can do it on Kindle. I can't, I can't bring myself to, uh, <laughs> to carry around a big, heavy book anymore. That's nah, it'll be, it'll be out on Audible before long. It sure, it sure should. I'm excited. Yeah. Wow. Actually, the entire Reality Dysfunction on Kindle is $9.99. I, I don't know. if Is that all of them? Nice. That would be great, isn't it? Wouldn't that be great if that were the whole yeah. thing? Oh, no. It looks like it's just the first one, The Night's Dawn. Oh, boy. Ah. Oh, boy. The Night's Dawn Trilogy. <laughs> well, I've read The Night's Dawn Trilogy. This isn't The Night's Dawn Trilogy, is it? Yeah, it is. Oh, well, I've read yeah. that. It's also known as... Uh, I, I was sure you had, Leo. It's also called Reality Dysfunction. Ah. I didn't know it was the same name. Yeah, I've read The Night's Dawn Trilogy. Yeah, yeah thank God I'm done of course with that. It's- and if, I know, I know. <laughs> okay, yeah, very good. But you know, yeah, yeah, I read that one. Okay, now I now and I and like Thanks. I said, it goes on a little bit long. It goes it's on like, a little uh, long. Yeah. Uh, okay. As does this show. But before we go, I just want to say I want to thank the folks at TriCaster. You know, a lot of what we do here in the new studio is courtesy partners who helped us out. And uh, New Tech has been so great. This TriCaster 850 Extreme that we use is absolutely. Uh, the next step up from the TriCaster we were using in the old cottage, HD, um, we get so much. Yeah, look at all this. So many capabilities. Um, you know who's really uh, become an expert on it? Alex and Chad, are the young folks here, are really good at using this. And we haven't even started to scratch the surface. We're still doing the static lower thirds. We could do motion graphics in the lower thirds. We could do all sorts of stuff. And you'll see, including... Uh, wild transitions you'll see as time goes by as we use more and more of the features of this what an amazing device this is we like that <laughs> that's the reality dysfunction <laughs> well we really want to thank our friends at new tech and encourage anybody who's looking to do uh, live video switching or video production uh to try the uh, tricaster series n-e-w-t-e-k uh, dot com we don't, you know, we don't do the green screen stuff. There's virtual sets. There's so much in here that we, we don't use, and yet uh, we are already having so much fun with it. Thank you, Steve Gibson, Gibson uh, Research Corporation. His company is grc.com. That's where you'll get a copy of Spinrite, the world's greatest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You also can get a, uh, a copy of all of his free, free stuff like Wismo, Don't Shoot the Messenger Decombobulator. And uh, this show as well, 16 kilobit as well as 64 kilobit versions of the audio. Full transcriptions, which Steve uh, pays for himself. So I thank you for that, Steve. Um, 
and uh, do the forums there. Uh, there's their great security forums. And, of course, if you have a question for Steve for our next Q&A episode, uh, just go to grc.com slash feedback. Next week, Thank you, more Leo. of the uh, Internet series? No, next week I'm with you in your studio. Uh, we're, we're recording on Thursday, and I'm going to take our listeners through my development from the beginning of a paper-based encryption system. Well, which, that's perfect because uh, we'll probably have to show stuff, right? So we, we'll, we'll need to do it here so we can put stuff on the table. It turned out very well. So it's going to be a, a really great episode, I think. So don't forget, Steve will be live in studio, but it's not the usual day. Thursday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv if you want to watch. Or, you know, uh, we, we usually have uh, uh, room for maybe 20 or 30 people in studio. We welcome visitors. If you'd like to see Steve, meet him, and, uh, and watch as we do this live, uh, email my sister Eva at twit.tv, eva at twit.tv, and uh, we'll accommodate as many people as we can fit in here. We uh, we always have a few people in here, but we can get. I think we can get. We had fifty in here during opening week, and I know there'll be a lot of people who want to come see Steve. Steve, thanks so much. Thanks, Leo. Catch you next time on Security Now. Security Now.